most days etched in the veils to be recalled by the sometimes forgetful sparkling breeze, both accurately and inaccurately, neither truly nor falsely. Greetings from New Delhi. It's a bit cold here lately. Hope you're staying warm. Those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. And for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope you're staying cool. That is, of course, if you're on the same planet as me and in the same time continuum. For those of you who might be as far out as the same planet in a future time, I hope you're enjoying yourselves. Oh. It can't be all bad, seeing as you've got a screen and an internet connection. Hopefully food and shelter as well, and friends, if not family. I just generally hope you're doing well today, whenever that is for you. Look what just arrived a few days ago. For those who aren't familiar, this is a book which exists solely for people watching this video series. I'm committed to not mentioning it anywhere else. This is exclusive for the elite few, the coolest of all the human race in any time. What it is, is a compilation of the three books in the trilogy. The Small Gray Mouse, Smaller Mouse, and the Multiverse Cartographer. It also includes a fourth section, which includes Second Fruit, the original 1997 story which birthed Charles Blythe Job, which later evolved into the New World Empire, as well as the cutting room floor, a few of the sort of deleted scenes, which may shed light on one or two things in the New World Empire universe. There are also many short stories in the first two mouse sections, and even a few others in that fourth bonus section. So, if you'd like to read the mouse books and the multiverse cartographer on ebook or Kindle, those are available. Links are in the description below. But if you're the sort of person who either likes to hold a book in your hand and read it the old-fashioned way, or you're into bonus material and being one of the elite few among humans or indeed all sentient life, then the link to the paperback copy of The New World Empire and the Interdimensional Coffee House is in the description below. Full disclosure, for every copy that someone buys of this book, I make 50 cents which I'll be sharing with Joe Zabinski, who you'll meet in the next episode. It is as inexpensive as Kindle Direct Publishing will allow me to make it, given that it's 400 pages of high-quality color. And as you can see, there are many photo-quality illustrations 
and uh, much of the text is in one color or another for a variety of reasons. So that's enough about that. You came for the chapter recital, didn't you? First, if you've arrived here randomly through a quirk in the algorithm, then I would recommend clicking up here and starting with the beginning of this video series so that you can get it all in order. In today's recital, I'll be reading two chapters, Roswell 1947 and Timelines. Without further ado, let us begin. Roswell, 1947. They call us reticulans because of the part of the sky we come in from. But reticulum is only a short ways out from the soul system. Our true origin is much further in a galaxy unknown to them. I wasn't the first reticulan to visit them. But I was the first who spoke English, and probably the most decent by their standards, of those of us who'd interacted with them prior to then. I was the first not to erase their memories of the experience, for example. Anyway, the ley lines were interesting in one area, so I landed there. I come in peace, I told the family of the ranch nearby. Art thou here to conquer us? The father human asked good-naturedly. No, just to visit. Wouldst thou mind turning off thy torch? Tis hurting mine eyes, he obliged. Dost thou intend to hurt me or my family? Nay, my good man, we are not so very dissimilar, thou and I, I assured them. The mother human said something to her mate. Then he said, Wilt thou come inside? Dost thou drink water? Tea is fine, or coffee, whichever ye prefer. Sooner or later, they helped me hide my ship in their barn, and we began to conspire as to how I might try to blend in, so as I might mingle with the humans in the more populated areas. Eventually, they grew tired and went to sleep, so I borrowed their radio and went back to my saucer. I updated my information as I listened to the advertisements and news broadcasts. As their luna set, and the light of their soul began to add an indigo shade to the starry sky, I heard a voice that shook me to the core. I was always fascinated by earth and humans, and while I felt a lingering curiosity about their females, I never imagined I would find myself fixated on one of them. It was only her voice the character and power behind it. She was an heiress, the owner of a casino called Le Chat Nouveau in a nearby city called Las Vegas, and her name was Elizabeth Windsor. My mission had changed.
And that concludes chapter three. I'll be a little avant-garde and start with the ending. In much of interdimensional fiction, there is this trope. The idea that a parallel universe would have the same individuals with the same faces, DNA, and even names as the one or ones we're familiar with. Now, of course, this makes sense if the divergence between the two universes happens after an individual is conceived, and makes even more sense if it does so after they are born and named. However, in other cases, such as Fringe, where you'll find Walter and Peter Bishop and the rest of the main characters in two very different universes, one in which Zeppelins became standard mass transit, for instance, it requires a bit of suspension of disbelief. The idea that a universe where the Tudor line remained on the British throne for substantially longer than it did in our universe would result in the person we know as Queen Elizabeth II in our universe to be born as a wealthy heiress in Las Vegas is unlikely, but it happened in the New World Empire universe. This was partially inspired by the plot of King Ralph, in which the entire extended royal family passes away in a tragic group photo accident, and the next of kin in line for the throne is a guy named Ralph, portrayed by John Goodman in Las Vegas. In this situation, we find Elizabeth Windsor, the richest woman in the world, running a casino in Las Vegas, falling in love with the Roswell alien in 1947, the year which in our universe she became engaged to Philip. Of course, in this chapter she hasn't met him yet, the Roswell alien I mean, but based on the tale told by Arthur Fathom in the previous chapter, we know that his feelings will be requited. The casino she runs is called Le Chat Nouveau. This is a reference to Le Chat Noir, said to be the first modern cabaret, which opened in 1881 in the bohemian Montmartre district in Paris. It was a nightclub where the patrons sat at tables and drank alcoholic beverages while being entertained by a variety show on stage. So back to the alien. In 1947, something crash-landed in Roswell, in the real world. They say it was a weather balloon, but as we all know, that's what they always say when it's actually aliens that or some top-secret new aircraft being tested. In our universe, there was a military base there and nuclear weapons being tested nearby. There is a theory that it was the fallout from these nuclear weapons being tested which messed with the aliens' instruments, causing them to crash. Implied in this version of events is that A, that is true, it was the nuclear radiation which caused them to crash, and B, there was no such radiation in the New World Empire universe. The power structure, 
that was indirectly established by the son and grandson of Henry VIII resulted in the absence of a World War II. That is not to say this timeline didn't have more than its fair share of problems. But through this turn of events, a crash landing at Roswell was not one of them. So if you've ever seen the old images of the gray alien corpses found at the crash site and believed them to be genuine, and if you've ever seen images of then Princess Elizabeth in 1947, then you know what to visualize. I'll go on record here and say that if you would like to supplement this chapter with any erotic fan fiction, I will not press charges. It has to be erotic, though, just to be clear. Anyway, as it turns out, in our timeline or theirs, this particular alien was the most cultured and civilized of the lot of them, making the crash landing in our universe that much more tragic. He wasn't coming to abduct anyone or to do any probing, only to fall in love. So I think that about covers it for chapter three. I'll move along now and get into the chapter called Timelines. It is difficult to believe it a coincidence that the first time and place which Charles Rubin visited, turned out to be the very same place where Job and Charles the Grey would meet centuries later. Yet, if he had not done so, Charles the Grey would not have been given that name, nor heard the myth of the interdimensional coffee house, nor would he have learned Fathom's numerals which played such a key role in the development of the interdimensional coffee house. Another thing which resulted from this was Charles Rubin's ongoing obsession with that particular universe, a fairly close cousin of his own universe. Mostly, it was the home of Blythe. Blythe interested him both as a unique and heroic individual and as the source of the Clara's faces and original personalities. Further, it was the home of his namesake, Charles the Grey, and the universe where Charles the Grey had originally created the interdimensional coffee house, albeit within Job's mysterious rectangle, which was outside of space-time. As a result of Charles Rubin's obsession, every aspiring multiverse cartographer learns the following timeline of that particular universe. As it was written in his journals, the journals which define multiverse cartography. Some of the events listed are broad-scale world-changing events, but most of them revolve around a few people in Blythe's inner circle. It is divided into two sections. First, there is the timeline written in stone. These are events which, according to Charles Rubin, had to happen in this particular way in order for the interdimensional coffee house to come into being. Given that it did, 
and is the very thing which is used to travel between universes, the timeline only occurs in one specific way for that universe. The second part of the timeline he calls one particular timeline. This was the timeline that he visited and became most familiar with, in which things unfolded after the coffee house and the Claras were created. The timeline written in stone. 1511, Henry IX is born healthy in Greenwich. It was New York pronunciation. 1604, Henry X commissions the first English dictionary to be composed by Shakespeare. Now, this has a little blue asterisk next to it, which means Charles Rubin witnessed these events. So he witnessed the composing of the first dictionary by Shakespeare. 1776, the round table of 11 royals. The New World Empire is established. New York City is renamed New World Center. 1861, Abraham Lincoln attempts a revolt and is executed. The blue asterisk. 1938. Samuel Fathom is born in Las Vegas. 1947. A reticulant lands at Roswell, meets Liz Windsor. Blue asterisk. 1966. Samuel Fathom begins orbiting Venus. Terraforming begins. They were using reticulant technology, so. 1978, Samuel clones himself and names the child Edward Fathom. 1993, Samuel Fathom dies. 2009, Anonymous resistance begins wearing Lincoln masks. 2022, Edward Fathom dies. Christopher Fathom, born 2018, dies 2055. Frederick Fathom, born 2043, dies 2082. In 2075, Frederick Fathom automates the cloning process in orbit. Daniel, also known as Dr. Fathom, is born. Born in quotes, because he's cloned, right? 2100, pacifist Lincolns establish the first free worlds in the dark web and new ancient land. 2106, Dr. Fathom lands on Venus. 2110, Sun Fathom is born in orbit, automatically delivered to Dr. Fathom on the surface. 2112, all of the New World Empire's labor is automated, save for government and law enforcement. The machines are overseen by the first drones. 2118. The Lincolns send several rebels to assist 
Dr. Fathom. 2119, the first redbirds arrive on Venus. 2124, Dr. Fathom is missing, presumed dead. Blue asterisk. 2125, the Lincolns alter empire records, establishing the Venus Project as strictly non-interference and confidential. 2168, Sun Fathom dies. Ben Fathom, born in 2145, dies in 2190. Lance Fathom, born in 2170, dies in 2216. 2199. On Earth, dronification becomes punishment for severe crimes. Chance Fathom, born 2205, dies in 2255. 2219. Dronification becomes punishment for all crimes. Resistance becomes focused on freeing drones. Edgar Fathom, born 2240, died 2289. Arthur Fathom, born 2275, dies 2326. 2288. Free world's populations explode when many drones are liberated by the Lincolns at once. Joseph Fathom, born 2310, dies 2359. 2316, Trigenta sex is introduced to Arthur and Joseph Fathom. Blue asterisks, obviously, because we know Charles Rubin was there, right? Carl Fathom, born 2345, dies 2399. The last clone of Samuel Fathom. 2356, Venus becomes habitable. Joseph and Carl Fathom focus on agriculture. 2386, Elizabeth slash reticulin zygotes unfrozen in Las Vegas. Frozen there for a while, eh? 2390, the first generation of 128 human reticulin hybrids are left on Venus. 2390 through 2399, Carl Fathom teaches the Venusians English at Fathom's numerals. 2391, Telliard of Anglesey is born. 2440, Job is born in Ashtarut. 2455, terraforming begins on Mars, Ganymede, and Titan. First white birds commissioned. 2463, Telliard and the rebels arrive on Venus. Blue asterisks. 2531, Charles the Grey is born in Theamon's Beta Regio. 2555, Job and Charles the Grey meet at Maxwell Montes. Blue asterisk. 2562, Charles the Grey becomes a Lincoln. 2579, William VI 
is born. Earth population reaches 12 billion. 2624, Simon Schwartz is born in the abandoned subway tunnels under New World Center. 2627, Blythe is born in the New World Center subways. Her father, John, dies. Lucy is born in William VI's White Bird. 2633, Baggett is born, New World Center subways. 2634, Blythe witnesses her mom, Joanne, murdered by redbirds. 2640, Rosalind meets Yusuf of Hebrerabia. 2642, Blythe kills several redbirds, is arrested, becomes a drone. 2650, Yusuf marries Tsar Titov II's daughter, Stasia, gives Rosalind one of his white birds to apologize. 2652, Charles the Grey orchestrates Blythe's rescue. 2653, Job gives Charles the Grey the rectangle, dies at Maxwell Montes, or Montes. Job dies, that is. 2654, Simon Schwartz repairs a redbird, paints it blue, and calls himself Bluebird Simon. 2655, Rosalind meets Redbird David. 2656, Charles the Grey creates the interdimensional coffee house. Simon is arrested. Eva contacts Baggett, Charles the Grey and Blythe free Simon, the Claras are created. Blue asterisks. So now we're moving on to the next section called One Particular Timeline. So that was the timeline set in stone. Now we're moving into one particular timeline. 2657, Simon meets David. David paints his redbird blue. 2658, Lucy abducts Blythe. 2659, many redbirds defect. Baggett becomes bluebird general. 2660, the bluebird army rescues Blythe. Baggett dies. 2661, William VI dies. 2666, Blythe and the Bluebirds relocate to Venus. 2674, Lucy's War begins. Bluebirds relocate to Ganymede. 2679, Blythe dies in battle on Ganymede. Blue asterisks. 2684, all traces of the resistance have been wiped out. The New World Empire rules over every breathable atmosphere and simulated world in the solar system. Okay, so that was a lot, I know. <clears throat> it's unusual 
for the entire story to be summed up in the fourth chapter of a book, including the ending. But there is a method to my madness, I think. It's not about the story in the conventional sense of the word story. It's not about the plot. Moving forward or backward, we'll be peeking into this timeline at various points, learning about various characters, some more than others. As is stated in the beginning of the chapter, because the interdimensional coffeehouse is created in a particular way as a result of particular circumstances, these things cannot be changed. We'll get into a lot of those circumstances later, and some of the missing bits from Smaller Mouse, which will help shed light on that as well. As a result, that particular universe, the New World Empire universe, cannot be changed. It's like a sacred timeline for those familiar with the Loki series, only in this case there's no version of Kang at the end policing it, but rather the existence of the coffeehouse itself and the fact that it is by way of the coffeehouse that multiverse cartographers can visit this and any other world, those events have to lead up to the creation of the coffeehouse. Those are the rules of time travel in this universe. You can change anything you want at any point in time in any other universe, or after the moment the coffeehouse is created in the New World Empire universe, just not before. If you were to try, you would find that whatever you did only served to ensure that events would unfold in this way. However, after the moment the coffee house is created, and more specifically, after the moment that Simon Schwartz finishes his experience of Palace 3 of New Ancient Land, duplicating the coffee house 36 to the power of 16 times, along with an exact replica of Blythe at 28 in 2656, and before you at me, note that it was before her 29th birthday. After that moment, the timeline can be altered. This is depicted here visually, in the timeline becoming a shade of lavender. In his lifetime, Charles Rubin never found a timeline where the resistance was a success. However, implied in all this, perhaps a bit too subtly, is that you, O oh, aspiring multiverse cartographer, can still visit any time or place in the lavender part of the timeline and help things turn out differently. So, in the previous chapters, we've touched upon a few of the events on the timeline. In 1511, Henry IX is born healthy, and in 1604, Henry X commissions the first English dictionary to be composed by Shakespeare. In 1938, Samuel Fathom is born, and in 1966, begins terraforming Venus, remember, with reticulant technology. In 1947, the unnamed Reticulin lands at Roswell and meets that universe's doppelganger of the then Princess Elizabeth Windsor. Princess in our universe, not in theirs. Arthur mentioned his mentor, Edgar Fathom, who we now know was born in 2240 and died in 2289. 
Arthur Fathom was born in 2275 when Edgar was 35. Edgar died when Arthur was 14. And Joseph was born when Arthur was 35. That seems to be pretty much standard. The clones are generated every 35 years in orbit, then sent to the surface of Venus. A bit of brain drain has occurred over the generations by the time Arthur comes around, since he does not know they are cloned in orbit and thinks they might have been born on Earth. Arthur dies when Joseph is 16, and Carl Fathom is Joseph's apprentice. Since Joseph refuses to tell Carl about the human-alien hybrids, it must come as a surprise to Carl Fathom when they arrive on Venus in 2390, when Carl is 45. The hybrids, who come to be called the Venusians, are four years old when they arrive, so Carl Fathom, the last clone of Samuel Fathom, takes on a kind of parental role for that first generation of half-human, half-gray alien Venusians. These things are implied if one stops to reflect, of course, but will go unnoticed if one reads it all very quickly, expecting the author to do it all for them. That is, of course, until the author becomes frustrated that no one is doing that and makes this video series on YouTube. Ah, crap, it just got meta again. Let's go back into whatever the opposite of meta is. So, it is noteworthy that Job is born in Ashtarut. This is the ancient name of Tarut Island in the Persian Gulf, just east of our Saudi Arabia, which is part of what is known in the New World Empire universe as Greater Hebrarabia. In the New World Empire universe, it is still known by this ancient name, Ashtarut, which is another name for the goddess Ishtar. Also noteworthy is the fact that Christopher Fathom is cloned in a space station orbiting Venus in 2018, and his predecessor Edward Fathom dies in 2022. This implies that Christopher Fathom was alone in that space station from the time he was four years old, likely relying a great deal on notes left behind by Samuel and Edward to understand who and what he was and to continue the work of terraforming Venus. There are other noteworthy elements in the timeline, but rest assured we will be referring back to the timeline every so often as we move forward with the readings. The Fathoms, were originally inspired by a chapter added to the then-developing story by Joseph Zabinski, who you might have noticed is credited as co-author of the Multiverse Cartographer. That chapter was called Dr. Fathom, who you can see on the timeline was the first Fathom, and indeed the first human, to step foot on the surface of Venus. Joining him later was the one he apparently named Son. Joseph Zabinski was kind enough to recite that chapter for us, so we'll be seeing him in the next episode of this series. Until then. Mm -hmm.